Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 1, Episode 15, The Kirsten Samuel Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. Kirsten, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me on your show, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you. I was thinking of this last night and this morning. I'm really excited because this is a huge topic that people need. Yes, it is. Yeah. So if you haven't met Kirsten, you are going to be in for a treat. She is an author, a coach, a speaker. And we actually met through another one of our guests, April Tribe Juke. And she has not only a story, but she actually has a ministry to help you that her and her husband do together. And while I don't want to steal her thunder, (laughs) I want to give you a quick overview of what to expect. Today in our society, we have an overwhelming amount of men and women getting addicted and hooked by pornography. Yes, We have the moral core and our our just values are not only dropping, but our senses, we're being desensitized to what is modest and what is right. So this episode, she's going to talk a lot about that. Now, her focus will be on the women, correct? Correct. The effects of pornography on women. However, I want to make this aware up front, there's going to be value for men and women in this episode. The rate of women getting involved in porn is actually a faster statistically than men and the adultery rate women and men. Now, both of us, men and women, we all need to be careful. We all have to be careful of this. We all have to keep ourselves clean and pure. But I don't want there to be this false sense of security that women today are actually being attacked more than the men. And men, you know, we've historically for years had this issue, but none of us are right. So I'm looking so forward to Kirsten, to what you have to say, how we can all help each other and move forward and grow so basically the format of the show, as we know, is we're going to go through your past, mm-hmm. the obstacles that you had to face, how you overcame them in practical steps so our listeners can succeed as well. And then we'll go off into where you are today and where you're heading in the future so we can help you. Awesome. All right. Well, take it away. All right. Well, <clears throat> my story doesn't start out that that interesting, really. I grew up in a small town in northern Minnesota. I grew up in a, a family of a, a, a very stable family, and it had been stable for generations. I was very blessed in that regard. I grew up with 35 different relatives within about a mile and a half of me. So wow. I, I don't even have that many in the country. <laughs> so I, I was very blessed. I, I felt accepted. I was loved. I was told to, you know, that I could do whatever I wanted to do. I just grew up in this beautiful environment. And, but I was hiding something that I will get to later. My husband and I met at, um, uh, at a Christian college. We were both students there. We got married after my husband graduated from college, and he grew up in a stable home, a great environment. Again, you know, these idyllic backgrounds. And about 13 years ago, our world fell apart. And the reason was that my husband was secretly addicted to pornography. 
and he was addicted to pornography on the internet. He had been exposed to pornography as a young child. So the statistics are true that most of us get exposed to pornography before the age of 11. And my husband fell in that category. I also, when I think back to it, was exposed to pornography right about that age. When this happened, he actually got caught at work. He was working for a major Christian organization, and they they saw his internet history and caught him. And he came home one night for dinner, didn't look good, didn't eat much for dinner, and I couldn't figure out. He was very quiet. And, and then all of a sudden, he looked at me and he said, it's very likely that I will not have a job tomorrow. And I was just shocked. Why? You know, I, what was going on? And he told me because of a moral failure. And my stomach dropped. I sat down very quickly and I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'm addicted to pornography. And I've been looking at porn at work and they caught me. He proceeded to tell me the whole story. And I sat there in shock. And in a nanosecond, I went from shock to anger to disbelief to deep, deep pain to believing that I had no value that there was something wrong with me. And then I believe it was David, the Holy Spirit, who said to me, you need help and you need it now. And the very next words I said were, first of all, he needed to tell our children. At the time, our youngest child was in college overseas. Our daughter had just gotten married two months earlier, and our other son was getting ready to head off to college. And I knew that they needed to hear this information from their dad. One of the reasons was that our daughter worked at the same organization as my husband, and I didn't want her learning that her dad had lost his job by watching him be escorted out of the building the next day. And so he he went and talked to our, da- our son, first of all, who was home and getting ready to leave for college, and then he called our daughter and our new son-in-law. And God is so gracious, David. <laughs> Both of them, all of, all three of them at the time, forgave them, forgave him immediately and said, we know that this is not the man that we grew up with and we're so sorry. How do we help? Wow. It was, it was truly amazing. And then the next thing I said is, I think I need to make a call to one of my coworkers. She and her husband uh, are licensed counselors and I knew we needed help immediately. And he said, go ahead and call them. So when I called them, I just said, we need to talk to you. We're in trouble. It's very, very serious. And they agreed to meet us within 20 minutes. We couldn't call our other son at that time because of the time difference. But within the next few days, my husband made a call to our youngest son who was overseas and had to leave a message for him. But that's another part of the story. When we met with our friends, we received immediately one acceptance. And when we blurted out our story, the very first thing I remember saying to them was, this is not fatal. And we needed to hear that because in my mind, my marriage was over. I was worth nothing. Who was this man? I was in, I was in anger. I, every lie that I had ever believed about myself came to the forefront and was screaming at me. 
From that point on, the next day, my husband also agreed to meet with a, a man that we had been in a small group with he and his wife, a small group Bible study for many years. And I said, I think you need to call him because you need to talk to somebody. My husband had to come to, to work the next day with a plan of action of what was he going to do. It was his only hope to keep his job. No, hold on, before you go on, um, when Kirsten and I were talking last week, I actually had to stop her. I'm like, don't tell me more. Don't tell me more. I want to hear this on the show. So a lot of what she's going into, I haven't even heard yet. So I'm super excited. But for this part, the day he got dismissed, correct me if I'm wrong, they said, you know, basically think through this, come back tomorrow and give us the reason or reasons why we should not fire you. Yes. And a plan so, of why of what you will do so that you're not going to do this anymore. So all of that stuff you just described that the thoughts are going through your, your head, the thoughts are going through his kid, having to explain it to his children, your children, having to talk to them, having to come up with a plan. This is all going on in a 12 hour period. Yes. Yeah. It was 12 hours. Yeah. Mental, spiritual, emotional chaos. So right. I just want to make sure that's clear to the audience. So now continue. Yeah. Please. So he did, he did go and after meeting with our friend, he had a, they did put together a plan of action and went to his employer to present that plan of action. The next day, my coworker and I had agreed to meet, to pray together while he was meeting with his employer in the HR department, because it was very likely that they were not going to accept the plan. Well, as I was getting ready to walk to my coworker's office, my, my phone rang and I almost didn't answer it, but my the receptionist at my office buzzed me and said, it's your husband. And my heart just, I mean, I was already devastated, but I don't didn't think it could go any lower, but it did. And he got on the phone and he said, I've already had my meeting and I still have a job. And I couldn't believe it. And he proceeded to tell me some of what had happened in there. He said, they, you know, I, I presented the plan that, that we talked about and they've accepted it. They've asked for a couple of extra things. And tonight we're going to go meet with our friend and his wife because we need to talk through what this plan of action looks like. Are you okay with that? And I just said, yes, I, I was stunned. I hung up the phone. I walked to my coworker's office and burst into tears and told her what had happened. Tears of gratitude and and utter panic at the same time. It was, it, uh, I'd, there are not words for me to describe the emotions and the devastation that was going on within me. We did put this plan of action into place. It included that he had to see a counselor that they recommended. He did, and he had to do that within one week. He did do that within a, about, a, I think it was the first or second day after he was, after this was brought down. That counselor referred him out to another counselor in our area who specialized in sexual addiction. Meanwhile, we met with our friend and his wife, and we laid out a plan for something that's called a restoration team. And it comes from the book, Redeeming the Fallen. And as they laid this out, I remember walking into their home that night. Now, keep in mind, this was 24 hours after the bombshell had been dropped and our world had just sh literally shattered to pieces. Mm -hmm. I walked into their home and saw my friend and the first thing she said to me was, you can cry if you want. And I burst into tears. I didn't know you could cry as much as I had been crying. And I yeah. sat there as we talked through this plan and they laid out this plan of the whole restoration team. 
And it's called a spiritual care team is another word for it. And the reason is, is that this is a group of people handpicked by the couple who is in crisis. And one of the main criteria, David, is that they have to be have a very strong relationship with the Lord and believe in the power of prayer. Mm-hmm. They have to be able to walk with you for 18 to 36 months. So get right. that in. Get, that's, a, that's a huge commitment that they walk with you. And basically, they agree that they are going to go through the, the muck and the mire with you to get to a point where you are standing back on your feet. Because at this point in time, when this happened, I wasn't standing at all. I was a crumpled heap on the floor. My husband was not much better. I didn't believe at this point, I wasn't even sure my marriage would survive. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even sure I wanted it to survive. Let's be honest. Yeah. I I was wounded to the core. And yet, and yet there was a part of me that said, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. I hate I hate the thought of divorce. I I would be embarrassed to be divorced. What's going to happen to me if I divorce my husband? You know, is does he really want to get over this? Will could he even get over this? All of these questions that were f- throwing through my mind, the voices and those questions and the pain in my head was so loud. I re- I really couldn't hear much else. And when they asked me, you know, do you agree to this plan? I just nodded and I said. I guess so. I don't have anything better. Yeah. And I, but I had no hope. Now, I knew that I had been told this was not fatal, but I didn't have any hope at this point because I believed my marriage, and at this point, we had just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. I believed that the last 25 years of my life had been a lie. Now, let's ask, let me ask you a question. When you spoke with him, you were married 25 years, this bomb's just dropped on you. You feel like everything's a lie. You don't know what to believe. And that's a normal a normal response for an right. abnormal situation. But sadly, it's a normal situation these days. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But when this was all happening and going on, the emotion you're feeling, it's tearing you every direction. What did he admit at that point? how long the addiction was or was it he was it was hard for him to say did he lie to you what was his response in this i could tell the other thing that gave me hope is i i knew him well enough at this point to know that he really was broken i mean he he was trying to do anything and everything he could to make it up to me mm-hmm. at this point but he hadn't fully grasped what he had done to me mm-hmm. because he had never acted out on the pornography. Thankfully, he hadn't gotten far enough in the progression of pornography addiction to begin to act it out. In other words, he had not physically had an affair. He had not gone to sleazy bars or strip joints or anything like this. It was all an online addiction. Mm-hmm. And but that doesn't doesn't negate the pain that the addiction causes. When he met with this new counselor that specialized in sexual addiction, one of the very first things the counselor asked him was, "Do you believe 
that your addiction has, you know, has wounded your wife? And he goes, well, yeah. And he goes, no, do you believe that in your wife's eyes, you've committed adultery? Mm. And my husband said, it stopped him in his tracks. And then the next question is the one that really got him to start thinking a different way. And that was, what is it worth to you for your wife to be healthy? And that's a key question. And when, when my husband Dave faced that, and he came home and he, he had this very stunned look on his face and I, you know, we weren't talking a whole lot <laughs> at this <laughs> point. I was trying to, I was trying to be a good Christian wife. I was trying to forgive, but I, I had so much mess going on inside of me that it, it's amazing that I could have one concrete thought. When he looked at me and he said, I have to ask you a question. And he said, my counselor asked what it was worth to me or if, you know, if, if I thought that this had really hurt you very deeply and what it was worth for me, for you to be healthy. And I said, well, how did you answer him? And Dave said, I want you to be healthy and it's worth everything in the world to me. And then he said, do you feel betrayed? Do you feel, you know, has how how wounded are you? And I said, you've committed adultery in my eyes, and you have cut me to the deepest part of my being and destroyed me in a way that no one else could destroy me. And that was the beginning of the honesty between the two of us. You see, up until this point, David, we were living a lie because as we progressed, and the result of this was we we ended up going through what's called an intensive marriage counseling. Okay. And we did this in conjunction with this group of, of six people that we handpicked who became this spiritual care team. And they they coached us. We had in there, we had the, the, the couple that we originally met with, the very first couple that were counselors. They were part of this team, the, the initial couple that we contacted who, who told us about this concept. And then we had another couple that were friends of ours. We didn't know them very well, but we knew their faith in God. And we knew that we needed somebody that we could both agree on that would be strong and would pray. And we knew that about this couple. And so we were meeting with them, and then we went through our intensive counseling. And when we got to the intensive counseling, we had to take a whole battery of tests within the first day. And the, you know, the first time we sat down in the counselor's office, I don't know about you, but sometimes you have, you hear the term and you have an image of someone in your mind, what they kind of look like when you're going to go meet with them. And mm -hmm. I had this image in my mind of this counselor. And when I met our counselor, he didn't look anything like my image. In fact, he completely took me off guard. He looked to me like an English professor at Oxford. Okay. And it was, it was just, it was just, and it, it so told me, took me completely off guard. Well, in our very first meeting with him, we had to go through a battery of tests. We had to take them home. We were told that we went through four hours a day, five days a week. We could watch no television. We couldn't, we did not, we took time off from work. How long was this intensive? It was a week long. One week long. Okay. One week long. And we had homework to do every night and it, it really was intense, but we came home that night and we had this battery of tests. And so, you know, they were those, the ones that I always hated from school where you have to fill in the blank, you have to fill in the circles. 
uh-huh. you know, into five color. choices, which are you? Yeah, and you have to kill in all these, you know, and you have to fill in the circles. And if you don't fill them right, then the test doesn't work. And yada, 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 <laughs> you know, all of that. I hated those things. Well, I sat down and I, and, and at this point in my mind, I was still, I was still really in the anger stage. And I was like, this is, this is my husband's problem. He has done this to us. He has basically thrown me away, thrown away my marriage, blah, 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 blah. I'm just going to finish this test. I can make it say whatever I want it to say. And it doesn't really matter because this is not about me. This is all about him. Now, before I go any further, there is one, there was one thing that happened just before this that made me make the decision to stick this out. Okay. And that was that um, we had gotten through to our youngest son that was overseas in school. And he'd finally called back and my husband had told him what was going on. And our son's response was pretty much like our other kids. He was very gracious. He said, Dad, I'm so sorry. I forgive you. You know, how's mom? He talked to me and then got off the phone. Well, a week or two later, we were working at a conference, which was part of what my husband did. And I got a phone call, and it was my son from overseas, which was quite unusual. And as I'm talking to him, and he was asking me some more questions, all of a sudden he came out and asked a question that stopped me in my tracks and really made me make a decision about what I was going to do moving forward. It had nothing to do with my husband, but it had everything to do with me. And that was, Mom, do you love my dad? And I couldn't answer that right away. Mm. But in that moment, David, I felt the Holy Spirit nudge me and remind me that love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. It is a decision. It is an act of the will. And in that moment... I knew that God had not given me permission to walk away from my marriage. And at that moment, I had to tell my son, I do not like your dad right now. I don't like being around him. I don't trust him. He has broken my heart. He has wounded me to the core. But to answer your question, I love him because I am choosing to love him. And I'm choosing to trust God. That was a pivotal point for me, which becomes very important when I go back to the story of the counseling session. Because two days later, as we get into the counseling session and we get the reports back, it was about a day and a half later. Can you actually pause? Sure. I'm going to have you pause, and this is why. You're unpacking a lot. (laughs) And as the listener there's some really, really huge statements you've made that I want to go back on before you go forward. I I don't want to stop your flow, but already like that, what you said, love is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. Talk a little bit more about that because that is true. And that's something that our society's abandoned, even within the walls of the church. Right. It's not a feeling. It's, it's a choice. It's, I mean, the basic most true is God is love. Right. And he chose to love us and he made that act of the will. But for the everyday, please talk about that. I know it's painful, but you're in pain. You feel betrayed. You feel all these just conflicting emotions and to the point of hate, I'm sure. 
Mm-hmm. But talk about how, despite someone harming you, the person that should be closest to you, that you can trust blindly, how do you love them? Talk about that, please. Well, I want to make a distinction here and be very, very crit- clear on this distinction. I was not suffering from any kind of physical, emotional abuse. I want to be clear on that. My husband, to one of the questions that I asked initially was, why didn't I know? Because my husband was one of the most tender, he still is, one of the most tender, compassionate, gentle, considerate men I have ever met in my life. He never treated me, you know, in a way that would indicate there was an addiction. Now, there were warning signs. And on my website, there's a free book that's called The 10 Warning Signs Your Gut Already Knows. Some of that was written, the majority of that was written from the signs I blew over. Okay. And and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if somebody wants it, they can click on and go right to your website and download it. Yep. It's right there. And I encourage people to get that because they're subtle. And that's why I miss them. So love is a choice. In, In our society, we talk a lot about romantic love. And that's in my, in my, my mind, that's not a true description. It's the, it's the either the phileo, if you want to use the Greek, or the eros love. It's the fluttery butterfly feelings we get in our stomach. It's the, oh, he makes me feel so good. You know, it's what the movies tell us love looks like. You know, it's, you know, they fill your world. They make everything right. They, you know, if you can figure out every every ideal dream, whether you're a man or a woman, of how that other person is going to treat you and make you feel, and you wrap it all up, that's called romantic love. God's love is sacrificial. God's love says, I am going to treat you. I am going to care for you. I am going to um, honor you, respect you, and treat you tenderly no matter what you do. Now, again, we do not ever cross the line into abuse. Does, God does not give us permission, does not expect us to do that. He does not expect you, if you are in a position uh, where you are being physically abused, you are afraid for your life. No, you get out of there. You get safe. But the kind, what the reason I was not released was because my husband did love me. Now, there's an interesting way that God has created men and women that are very different, okay? Mm-hmm. Men have this ability to compartmentalize their lives into some mm-hmm. respect where if you're if you're doing your job you're you're 110 percent in your in your job you're not thinking about what's going on at home you're not thinking about if the kids are sick you're not thinking about anything else you're you're 110 percent fully invested in what you are doing it's one of the reasons why some of the best um player you know basketball player any kind of a sports player or chef pianist musicians art is something that can be so they're men because they have this intense focus. Now women, I've heard this described is that women's life is like a bowl of spaghetti. Okay. (laughs) It's all intertwined and you can't untangle it. And so for a woman, I don't get to turn that off. I don't get to just say, well, that's that. And this is this, I, I can't do it. 
I mean, if I'm, when I'm at, when I was at work and my kids were sick, I, I was constantly processing, are they doing okay? Have I heard from them? You know, every couple hours I would stop to check in on them. My husband never did that once during the day to check in on one of the kids if they were sick and we were both at work. It's just the difference in the way God has created us. And it's a beautiful difference because it allows us to play to our strengths. The nurturing part of a woman and the strong part of a man that, that is the protector and so as I learned, as I had to make the choice that I was, first of all, going to love my husband out of a sheer act of the will at this point, because what I said was true. I did not like him. I didn't want to be around him. I didn't trust a word that came out of his mouth at this point. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I knew that he was broken. And the only way you can know that is you know the person you're living with. Yeah, and that's huge because we both know people who've gone through this or physical adultery, and that really is such a big deal. When you know they're broken, mm-hmm. true biblical brokenness, it just makes it not easy, but easier right. to accept and to forgive because you know they're actually truly sorry. Right. Not now, just words. Don't confuse forgiveness and trust. That's another big issue. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're unpacking so much. Everything <laughs> you're saying, I don't want to miss anything. So if you're listening, there again, if someone raped a child, that doesn't mean you don't forgive them, but you also don't hire them to be your babysitter. No, and and there are consequences of the action. Okay, that's another thing that there's a wonderful book written by Mary DeMuth called We Too. And it is, an, it is a, a book written from her own experience and from study and from a deep passion to unpack the fact that whenever there is a crime committed, believer, unbeliever, within the church, not, there are consequences to our actions. That's why Jesus had to come and die on the cross, David, because we were sinful. Exactly. We committed, we turned away from God. And God made the way for us to come back to him through the death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We weren't even looking for it. And yet, out of his love for us, his unconditional love, his love that reached toward us when we were pushing him away, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to redeem us, to make a way for us to be back in community with him. So forgiveness is one thing. And forgiveness, again, is another choice. It's another act of the will. It's a decision to say, I'm giving up my right to exact punishment from you for what you have done to me. But trust is a whole different matter. Mm-hmm. You, you have to earn trust. And trust is earned one word, one action, one thought, one kept promise at a time. You can lose trust in an instant, which is what happened in in our relationship, in our marriage. The trust was shattered. It was gone. If you think of trust as a bank account, that withdrawal had gone into a deficit. He had overdrawn the account. It was done. So, and it wasn't like I could say, okay, I forgive you, and then I'm going to trust you. No, I forgave him, but everything he said and did was suspect. Now, and again, man, let's stop there because people, okay, forgiveness, you forgave him, right. but the trust wasn't there. Right. 
So you forgiveness is a one-time process, right? You just forgive them one time and you're done. No. Or <laughs> talk about that. Cause that's a huge frustrating that like you can see my veins popping out of <laughs> my neck on the camera. But when people say that, oh, if you forgave me, you wouldn't be bringing this up. I just want to smack them in the head because that you broke the trust. This is a result of your sin. There are consequences. Yes. Talk about that because I'm obviously sometimes, you know, we all have an image in our head or we have the understanding in our head, but to communicate, it's different. How would you explain to people how you forgive, but then the pain comes back and then you got to re-forgive and re-forgive. How do you do that? I told him that I forgave him because he asked me very, within that first 24 hour period, would you, can you, excuse me, can you forgive me? And again, I believe it was the Holy Spirit who spoke through me at that point and said, yes, I, I will forgive you. And then I quickly followed it up with, but I don't like you. <laughs> and I'm mad at you. So there's the Holy Spirit speaking, I forgive you. And then there's Kirsten coming out and saying, but uh, this is who I am. These are the very real consequences of the actions. Think about your children you know, and think about when you have done something to d someone and you know that you're wrong and you come to them and you say, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And, and that person extends and says, I forgive you. Is there an, an immediate from the other person? And in, and even within yourself, if you're honest, do you immediately go, phew, that's done and, and let's just move on. Sometimes you can, but when there are huge issues in the way, when there are ramifications of whatever that action is, let's say, let's say you've got a child who stole something from a store. Mm -hmm. Okay. It could be a small child who saw a piece of, saw a candy bar in one of the candy bar and they, and you get home and don't, and didn't realize that they had stuck it in their pocket. Okay. What are you going to do? Are you going to say to that child, oh, that's okay. I, for, I forgive you. That's Okay and let it go? Or, or are you going to use this as an opportunity to teach your children about honesty and respect and what it, you know, that we don't steal things, that that is wrong? Because it's those moments that we learn what it means to live with integrity. So there are consequences even when there's, when forgiveness is extended. In my case, in this one, I did extend forgiveness. And then the next day I had to extend forgiveness. I had to make the choice again to forgive and not dwell on the anger. That didn't mean I didn't have to deal with the anger. And it didn't mean that I immediately embraced him and said, everything's okay because everything was not okay. We had a lot to recover from. And we mm -hmm. had to recover from each part of the wound separately. And mm -hmm. each part had to be dealt with. And each aspect of walking out that forgiveness, I guess, would be a way that I would say it, had to happen one step at a time. And sometimes it honestly felt like we took two steps forward and 10 steps back. Yes. And so anyone who's dealing with this or who has dealt with it and you have unresolved pain, mm -hmm. listen to Kirsten. What she's saying is you are forgiving. But each day, little tiny things may pop up that are triggers. Mm -hmm. And that trigger can literally, what seems, you could have a room of 20 people and they all think, what's the big deal? But that is something key to you and that burns you up. 
So, Kirsten, talk to us about the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Right. I've had instances where people have greatly hurt me, and then other people from the outside are like, you're angry, so you're in sin. No. Exactly. <laughs> I know. We're talking biblical common sense here. But there's talk about the balance between be angry and sin not. Because if you go through something this traumatic and you're not angry, you're in denial. You're, you're not in a good place. You're, you're basically emotionally dead. Yes. So talk to those people. Because there's people listening now who have done it to their spouse, male or female. Mm-hmm. There's people who have had it done to them, mm-hmm. male or female. And there's people who are secretly right now looking at porn and they know it's wrong and they feel guilty and they know, okay, I, this would hurt my spouse, but they don't really understand the intensity in the future because they're blinded by sin. Mm-hmm. Me, you, mm-hmm. any sin we're involved in, we're going to be blinded ourselves. Mm-hmm. But talk about that right now. The way that I learned to process that verse, in your anger, do not sin, is how another translation says it. Yeah, sorry. I'm old. I no, go King. I'm not like fine. King James only, but I love yeah. the King James because oh, that's what I, yeah. that's when I got saved. That's what I use. So all my verses that I memorize is that. I know. It's kind of weird to try to memorize them in other translations, but. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. But in your anger, do not sin. Anger is an emotion, just like every other emotion. It's an emotion like, like happiness, joy, sadness, all of that. Those are all emotions. And emotions are just that. They're, you know, I call them relief valves to whatever's going on in your body. Because sometimes you're so excited, you have to jump up and down. Well, the jumping up and down isn't the emotion. It's the emotion that drove the jumping up and down. Your anger is is coming as a result of a couple of things. One, you didn't get, something didn't happen that you wanted to happen. An expectation didn't get met. Something yes. like that. That's just a, it's just a human response to what happened or did not happen. The key in that verse is, like I said, in your anger, do not sin. So it's how do you respond out of that emotion? Now, if you're angry and you walk up to somebody and you double up your fist and you pummel them, you're wrong and there's consequences of your action. That's sin. But if in your anger, you look at the other person and you say, you know, right now I'm angry, I'm angry with you. I'm not angry at you. You did not make me angry. I am angry. Again, change your language. I am angry. I am mm. choosing at this moment. This is the emotion that is going through me at this point. I am angry. Here's why I'm angry. And if you can learn to identify the cause of your anger, and this is hard. This is hard. And this is something that both of us have had to walk through is learning to process our anger in a healthy manner. But once I could learn to process the anger and I didn't take that anger and use it to cause harm to another person, that's where I felt like I was not violating that verse. Otherwise, if I took my anger and I used it to browbeat my husband, to beat him down as a person, to speak about him to other people negatively, which I did do, and that was wrong. That was sin. Then I was crossing that line into sin. I don't know if that made sense or not. It makes 100% to me. Hopefully it's making it to the listeners. But again, in the show notes, I'm going to put contact info to you 
my contact info is always in there. So you, if listeners, friends, if you're out there and you have questions and this isn't clicking or making sense, reach out to us and we'll do our best to help you. One of the, one of the things that this relates into, and this was part of my recovery, um, was learning to establish healthy boundaries. And we hear a lot about boundaries today. But one of the things I love is what Dr. Henry Cloud and, and Dr. Townsend say about boundaries. And boundaries are like, boundaries are emotional fences for us. They protect us. The boundary is for you. It's not for the other person. But what it says is, I love you enough that I'm going to behave in this manner. And part of dealing with anger in a healthy way is to establish healthy boundaries. There were some nights that that we were unpacking something from the counseling or we were unpacking something beyond the counseling, working with this coaching team and on all of that, that would bring up emotions that were so intense that they they did cross into anger. And and we would have to look at each other and just say, I'm not at a point that I can process this with you yet. And we would go to bed. Because again, the Bible says in your do not go to bed angry, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what we did was at that point we had to agree that we knew we were going to resolve this issue. We had to resolve this issue, but we were not at a point, either one of us, in an emotionally stable place to be able to deal with it at that time. That didn't mean we were I was lashing out at him or he at me, but it did mean that we had to table it to table the discussion until the next day. But again, we dealt with it, but we had to table it to get to a healthy point. And you weren't kicking the can down the road, let's hope he or she forgets, and maybe a month or five weeks. You knew this needs to be resolved. This needs to be brought to the light. This needs to have healing, because what happens if we don't resolve something? You get in a mess like I was in. And we'll get there, I swear. You just brought <laughs> so much. We could do like three episodes easily. Do me a favor. Yeah. Before we go on, give give us some practical steps. Okay. You said right there, you could identify the cause of the anger. You said how difficult that is. You had to learn. We're always learning and growing, right? You had to mm-hmm. learn to process anger in a healthy manner. Right. Give us two or three tips or steps or tricks that we can use sure. to rewire our brains. The first thing is to change your language. Instead of saying, you make me so angry. And let me ask you a question. Can someone else make you angry? Do Are they coming up and saying, you're going to be angry now? <laughs> it's a response. It's a response. So switch the language. I am angry. Own it. I'm angry. Then, you and this takes a, this takes a, a bit of time. You have to stop. <laughs> You have to stop and you have to say, why am I angry? Now, when you first start to do this, it doesn't happen right away. It's going to take time to process this. But the first thing is to switch your language. If you hear yourself start to say, you may stop it and say, I'm really angry with you right now. You're owning it. You're saying what's going on and that's okay. But you did not accuse the other person of doing something to you that they cannot do. Do not give that other person that kind of control. You have the autonomy to control your own emotions and to identify them. Yeah. And even if that person is 100% wrong, which right. it's usually, it, you're just literally not you. Like, hold on. I'm going to be careful when I say this. Because <laughs> you and I, I think, are on the same 
path here, but I don't want a listener who's a little confused or not as like in touch with what we're talking about. You know, it'd be great if people listening never experienced this and they have no idea what we're talking about. Right. The truth is a lot of the listeners understand exactly what we're talking about. They felt the pain. But even if somebody's 100% wrong, the pride kicks in when you accuse them and point out their sin. Right. You're just escalating it. Yeah. It's like beating a dead horse. And I'm not going to lie to you. This is one of my major communication flaws. Mm -hmm. I'm a passionate, let's take care of this now guy. And I'll be like, boom, right there. This is what you did. Yep. Because I want somebody to, I really do like when people treat me like that. I'm too stupid. I want to know exactly (laughs) what I did. So I know how to fix it. But when I treat other people that way, it's usually a terrible, horrible disaster. Yes. So uh, what Kirsten's saying, I completely agree. So number one is change your language. Number two is take a step back and take a deep breath. Like I said, you could, it's a, you need to acknowledge the anger, but then you need to figure out the source of the anger. And like I said earlier, and like I learned in this healing process was my anger was rooted in something else other than probably what was happening in front of me. That's to come. Okay. <laughs> There's there's a false expectation. There's um, an unmet need. There's you know maybe even a goal that's getting thwarted. You're heading in a certain direction, and somebody intercepts your path, and it makes you angry because they they're diverting you from where you wanted to go. That in a in an interpersonal thing could be. In my situation here, I was angry because he destroyed my concept of my marriage. He destroyed mm. my concept of who I was as a person. I was angry. Yeah, 25 years, three kids. Yeah. It just all changed in a moment. It changed in a moment. So th- that's the second thing. The third thing is if you're a person of faith, you've got to be praying about this. And that pray might be, God, I am so angry right now. Would you please calm me down? That might be what you can get out of your mouth. And there were times that I literally stopped and said it out loud. God, I am so angry. There would be times I was driving down the road, David, and and something would come to my mind and the anger would will, well up so greatly that I was literally yelling at God as I was driving down the road. And when I think mm-hmm. back about it, I thought, you know, when you stop at a stop sign and you see somebody kind of going crazy, don't you kind of wonder what that person is doing? I thought there were probably a whole bunch of people who thought that woman over there is crazy. Okay. And I was, I was Mm -hmm. at that moment. But what I learned in that process was God could handle my anger. I think that's a lie that we've been fed today is that you can't yell at God. You can't tell him how you really feel. Well, I got news for you. He already knows right? He already knows if he created you, if he is your loving father, then he already knows every thought that's going through your head. You might as well say it and get it out instead of stuffing it because the stuffing, it only makes it worse. Yeah. Yep. And then, so that's the third step and they all happen pretty quickly, honestly. And then Mm -hmm. the fourth step is decide to resolve the issue. Okay, you can you can have people tell you in uh, all until they're blue in the face. You've got to resolve it, but it's your decision. No one again can come force you to resolve it. How well does it work when we tell our kids, "Go tell so and so you're sorry"? How well does that work? Yep. What do not they usually, well at all. No. What do they usually say? I'm sorry. You know, yeah. it's not a heartfelt. 
But if you make the decision to resolve, then it's on you. Because if you don't do it, who, who, who broke their word? I did. Mm-hmm. I made that decision and then I decided not to do it. I blew it off. So as you work toward healing, as you work toward living authentically with each other, which we were not doing, These are the things that start coming up and they don't come up one at a time, but you have to learn in each moment to stop. And that's what makes this part of the healing and this part of the story so painful and so difficult. But the good news is I want to give you the, I want to give you the the hint at the end, the spoiler at the end. (laughs) God is greater and he's the one who is the God who restores and redeems and rejuvenates. He is the one who rewrites the story. So that's the spoiler. (laughs) All right. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break there as a listener. We're going to do a quick uh, commercial break, and then we'll come back. And when we get back, Kirsten's going to tell us the rest of her story and start off with that day two of counseling that I have totally distracted her from. But I think it had great value. So thanks for listening. Uh, Check out our sponsors, and we will be right back. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dave Pasqualone, host of the Remarkable People podcast, and I am excited to introduce you to today's sponsor. The episode you're about to listen to is brought to us by Pam Heinold, realtor and broker associate with Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, Pensacola, Florida. When my wife and I moved to Pensacola years ago, we were looking for a qualified real estate professional to help us find our new home. We had two kids, a new career, and not a lot of time. And having moved eight times in 10 years all over the country, we've experienced many, many realtors buying and selling homes at this point. So after moving to Pensacola and interviewing several agents, it was clear to both of us that Pam was the right choice. Her experience, credentials, knowledge, and skills truly are remarkable. And because of that, she's a top producer in the area year after year. Now, I understand that you only care about your home and what makes your life special and great. But that's just it. What makes Pam special is her ability to listen to you, understand what you want, and find you exactly what you're looking for so you have that greatness. If you're somewhere in the world right now looking for a primary residence a vacation home, a rental investment, or anything else, call Pam. She can help you. She's easy to work with, and she'll help you find your dream home or even just a cool place to come and visit a couple times a year. You can surf, paddleboard, kayak, swim with the dolphins, parasail, whatever you can think of, we have it down here in the beautiful Pensacola Bay Area. So check out pamheinel.com. That's P. A-M-H-E-I-N-O-L-D dot com or call her office at 850-232-2332. And when you call, make sure you tell her Dave said hi. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back. Kirsten, you've been such a lovely guest and so much information. I literally have probably 12 questions that I'm going to stop asking you from that section. But let's pick up on that day two of counseling. That's where we we rudely interrupted, but I think with purpose. Right. 
Well, it was actually day three because we were just starting day three. We had completed day two and we were walking in that morning and we knew we were going to get our test results from all of this battery of tests. And one of the things that we were looking for was, was my husband's pornography addiction, did it have a root in something more serious? Okay. Okay. Was there narcissism? Was there, you know, was there, you know, was he I can't think of it now, but what is he bipolar was what was going on. And, and so I honestly was quite nervous because I thought, boy, if he's got something like this, this is a whole other ballgame, God, and you're telling me that I don't have permission to walk away. And, and now keep in mind, my mindset is still in the counseling, even though our counselor had started really peeling back the layers pretty quickly and kind of getting to the, to my pride and my stubbornness and my attitudes that were less than desirable at the moment. Okay, now wait, let's stop there because you are legitimately harmed. You were yep. legitimately hurt, but you're you're saying how the counselor was calling you out on your stand. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but that goes back to that balance in that what was a counselor doing to get to the heart of you both? Because that's the key. It's getting yes. to our hearts, to God pointing us to God and each other. Mm -hmm. How did they do that as much as you can share? He he very quickly saw through my smoke screen. You know, when you walk into an off and when you walk in and you sit down with someone and you lean back and you fold your arms, what are you telling that person? Disinterest. Disinterest. You're you're cold. You don't want to be there. You're angry. All sorts of negative. There's nothing you can do for me. Right. You know, I'm just here. Right. Well, you started asking me questions about, well, what did this feel like? You know, how are you interpreting this? How do you feel towards your husband? And he started, you know, and I'd say, well, you know, it's his fault. Well, yes, but how do you feel about it? You know, because you have, you are reacting somehow. And he started poking at that anger. He started poking at that hurt. And not in a, not in a malicious way, but in a way to get my mind to start opening up. And sometimes we need someone, most of the time we need someone who is willing to make us mad enough to confront what we have to confront, right? Oh, absolutely. Jesus even did that. He came and he asked questions and he did it in love. He did it in firmness. Sometimes he was straight up righteous anger. Right. But Jesus wasn't there to give you a cum, like, you know, hey, let's give everybody yeah. a hug. It's all okay. Right. No, it's not. There's no, clear not. black and white. <laughs> and, and what I was going through was not okay. And he was getting me to the point of saying, I have to deal with the emotions. I have to deal with how I'm feeling. In order for us to have any hope of recovery, I had to be honest. And I wasn't being honest. I was hiding. Let's just put it up yeah. there. I was being, yeah. I was hiding. Because you were in pain. I was in and pain. And the human reaction is to hide. But what do we all need to do in every area is go truth. Go to go truth. To well, and I was also afraid, and this came out after I tell you what the results of the test were, I was afraid that if I opened up in any way that I would never recover. Mm. That was That was what was holding me back. That if I really let you know how I thought and what I was thinking and how I felt and the deep, the depth of the wound and the depth of the anger, that I would be utterly and completely rejected. And I would never, ever be accepted by anyone again. There was no hope of recovery. 
Yeah. And would you say it was almost like a self-defense mechanism? Mm-hmm. Like you're trying to shut up. You're trying, like if you had a, a wound on your chest, yep. well, what are you going to do? You're going to cover your chest and get out of the battle. Yep. You're going to get out, cover and run. Yep. And that's so what that I wanted to do. I wanted to tuck and run. Let's just, yep. let's just put it on there. That fight and flight syndrome was kicking big time. And I was, I wasn't ready to fight. I didn't have anything to fight, but I was ready to run. So yeah. we get to, can I, go ahead. Can I ask you a question before yeah. you run? I, I believe these are hopefully good questions or helping people. During this time, this all happened so fast for you. From the time you found out what happened to the time you got to the intensive, what was that time frame? It was three, uh, three and a half months. Three and a half months. Okay. Mm-hmm. During that three and a half months, you had super supportive people, mm-hmm. which is awesome right. to have godly supportive people. It's, it's in it was a it's gift. essential. It's a gift. It's mm-hmm. essential, but let's take a, br- a second. Cause I'm sure we haven't talked about this, but were there people who were not supportive, who were not understanding, who were not giving you godly advice? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, Talk about that because that's a temptation in itself for empowering you to sin to leave the marriage and also just to be flat out furious at them. So talk a little bit about that. Cause that's a real, real struggle that people go through your early in tragedy and trauma. And now these morons are adding to it with their sin. How do you, how do you <laughs> deal with that? Well, we had a lot of people who wanted to give us the, the quick answer. And I have been that person where I've wanted to give the quick answer. I've come to learn that the reason we want to give the quick answer is because we can't deal with the pain. We can't deal with the fact that everything is not good. The other thing was, honestly, David, we didn't tell many people. We, very, we withdrew from everything other than this group of six people. They were the ones that we could tell the truth to. And yeah. thankfully, they were the type of people that didn't say the stupid things to us, that didn't give us mm, pat okay. answers, that didn't say it's going to, you know, they did say it's going to be okay. But you have got a long road ahead of you. And we're going to walk with you every step of the way. There were people who would, you know, look at us and say, make comments about, oh, you know, you and Dave have such a great marriage during this three and a half months. Okay. And I would look at them like, you are clueless. You have no idea. You know, I did have, I, I did have one person no, I'm not going to say that yet. There was, <laughs> <laughs> there was, there were people that would kind of look at us like something's not right, but they didn't ask us anything. Mm-hmm. And that was okay. That was okay. But the people who would, would try to just brush it off and like, they didn't even really know the whole story. They didn't take time to even ask the questions about the story. They mm. just knew that at our church, for instance, we stepped down from all positions. We were both in positions of leadership. We mm. stepped down from that. I I actually left my job that I was at during that time. And part of the reason that I left my job during that time was there there had been some things that had been said to me. There was an issue that came up. And when I when confronted with it and when I was talking it through, the result the response from my boss at the time was not a healthy response. And because of what I was going through in that moment, 
I walked out. Mm. Now, now, as much as you can, define not a healthy response. Was it unbiblical? Was it not mentally healthy? What define that? It was a. I asked a direct question. I had I had done something. There had been there had been some issues that had had gone on in the job, and there had been a miscommunication between my my boss and me, and it happened within thirty days of when my world fell apart. Okay, so this was a professional separate not related to what was going on right. in person. Okay, okay, okay. So when I had an evaluation, my annual evaluation with my boss, this came up and, you know, I apologized. I said, you're right. By this time, my boss knew what was going on in my personal life. And I I, I said, I did not, I, I dropped the ball. I, I, you know, I didn't do it. And I'm very sorry. And I, and there were some other statements that were, were made that, that were red flags to me as far as something else is going on here. And I began to feel unsafe. And so I asked a question, and that was, do you want me to continue in this role? And the answer that came back to me was, I don't know. Gotcha. And in the state that I was in at the time, that in effect, told me I was fired. That's how I interpreted that response. Mm -hmm. I left work. I went home. I, I fell apart as soon as I walked out of the office. And I drove home sobbing. I don't honestly know how I got home. I, I, I told my husband when I got home what had happened. And I... His advice was that I call the women on our in our in our spiritual support group and talk it through with them because I didn't have the mental space to deal with it or the emotional space. I didn't have capacity. It was there was nothing there. And they all gave me excellent advice that I did not listen to. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because again, I the emotional space when I look back on it and when I tell you the rest of the story there's another piece that fits into this that response from my boss at the time was less than helpful for the situation we were in and it was probably one of the more devastating comments that would made to me after I confronted it I went back in I basically I resigned and I wrote the letter out I explained to them why I was resigning and my boss came back to me and said, you know, why, you know, I, I, why are you choosing to leave? And I said, because when I asked you a point blank question, asking if you wanted me to stay in this position or not, you said, I don't know. And to me, that means no. Gotcha. It's because I didn't get the affirmation I needed at that point. So it was one more failure that I chalked up in, in the wound that was gaping at this point. And to you, it was just like you had your professional life, which at certain points in our life, that's like a almost like a ease from what's going on at home. Right. But now you had this double where your home life was in chaos and now you go to work and that's in chaos. And it's like anything else. There's always overlap and right. they all work together. So now you got two areas of your life out of whack, right? Right. So this is God's really breaking you down with a purpose. So go on <laughs> yes. and show us where this is leading. Okay. So we get the re we get we're sitting there and we're getting the results, and our counselor looks at Dave, at my husband, and says, "Well, there's good news. You have extremely low self esteem. 
and your pornography addiction is a medication of choice to deal with with how low your self-esteem is. We can work on that. There's hope. And I'm really relieved. There's no sign of narcissism. There was no sign of any of these other things that we were very, very concerned about. This simply was a matter of helping him re-understand who he is in Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you at that point, it was the first time I think I exhaled in three and a half months. Yeah. And I went, oh, thank you, God. You know, and so I, at this point, I'm like, oh, woo, we're home free. You know, yes, there's hope and we can do this. And so I just, at that point, I sat back and I just relaxed. I mean, I just completely mm-hmm. relaxed and I, and I, and Dave did too. And then the counselor turned to me and I can still see his face to this day. His whole demeanor changed. And he leaned forward in his chair and he looked at me and he said, I have to ask you a question. Have you ever or now considered taking your own life? And I, I, I gasped and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I said, no, why would you ask me that? And he said, because you are suicidally depressed. You have an anxiety disorder and you have PTSD and you need immediate help. Wow. And that's when I call it my divine two by four. That's when God smacked me upside the head and he knocked me down and he pinned me and he said, okay, are you ready to deal with what you've been hiding all these years? Wow. And at that point, David, I realized that my husband's pornography addiction saved my life. And that's a harsh way to say it. Yeah. But it's true because... I was running. And see, what I was hiding was I had been sexually abused as a child. Okay. Now, it's, it's been a long time for me to be able to say that because it was a single incident, but I was young enough and I was a compliant child. And so when my abuser said to me, don't tell anybody this is just between us, I kept the secret. Hmm. No, was this friend, family? It was trainer? someone I knew. So, okay. Yeah. And the details are not important. No, 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 no. no. I, the only other question I have for you that I think would be sort of important. How old were you? I was nine years old. Nine years old. So you were old enough to know, but still nobody can grasp that at 50, let alone at nine. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's where your mind and emotion shut down. I literally was stunted emotionally at nine years old. Yeah, and for the listeners, if you've had something traumatic in your life and you haven't talked about it, and you might not even realize it right now, what Kirsten's saying is medically, psychologically a fact. It's not mm-hmm. she's making it up or she's thinking this. When we have something truly traumatic happen to us as a child, even as an adult, if we don't deal with it at that point or in the future, we were stunted and almost like paused. Mm-hmm. Like the rest of our life will grow but that part of our brain and mind and behavior stays. Right. So this is really interesting. And like, you know, you said, uh, the Bible says, again, in the version I use, all things work together for good to those that love God. Mm-hmm. So it's a horrible, painful situation. Mm-hmm. But without this, you may never have opened up to what you needed to. So right. please continue. So again, our God prepares the way for us. And we took a break 
after we started unpacking this and and the counselor continued to talk to me about what what he was what he was describing as far as the suicidal depression the PTSD and I went how in the world do I have PTSD I've never been in combat you know mhm mhm that's where I thought I thought PTSD was only for severe trauma yeah. like war it is not I have learned a lot about PTSD in the in the years since I've been in recovery and as I've studied PTSD all usually comes from a traumatic event and most of us are healthy enough that we can process that traumatic event but when you do like I did as a child and you bury this and you don't reach out for help because a child doesn't at this point know how to reach out for help mm-hmm. you know my mother when i told my mom about this she said why didn't you tell me i i i mean i told my mom everything like i said remember i had this idyllic childhood i mean i have no complaints about my childhood growing mm-hmm. up because i knew i was loved i knew i could tell my mom and dad everything i this is the one thing i didn't tell it's the one thing i did not mm-hmm. tell this is the one thing I could never process with anyone. The first person I told was my husband. And before this incident? Yes. Did he know? Oh, so it didn't unpack in counseling. You you've talked to him. I had before? told him because the counselor asked me, Has have you told any is this the first time you've said this? And I said, No, I told Dave. And when we were before first, you were married? Oh, when you were first married. Before we got married, I told him about the, you know that this had happened. And talk about the psychology of that, because a lot of people need to understand that you were saying it because you felt like you did something wrong and <laughs> guilt, and you had to get that unpacked before you went into marriage. Is well, that what you're thinking? I wanted him. I wanted him to know. I just said, you know, I've never told anyone, and I and I wanted to know how he would respond. I think it was. I think I almost used it as a test. You know, would he accept okay. me? And he did. He told me he was so sorry that 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 had happened to me. And he said, you know, it doesn't change how I view you. Again, remember, I didn't think I had any value. Mm-hmm. This is one of the lies that, that I can tie back to that. And yet he, he validated me at that point. And so believing that because I had said it, that I was okay. That, mm-hmm. you know, but I didn't process it. I said it. And I, you know, I, but at the, even at the time that I told him, I said, well, you know, here's what happened. And it was only one time. It wasn't that big a deal. You know, well, no, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, a nine-year-old little girl cannot process this. No, no child can process this. And I didn't seek help even at that point. And he didn't know enough at that point to encourage me to seek help to begin to unprocess it. Cause it was the very, like I said, the first time I'd ever voiced it. And now you fast forward 25 years in your marriage and you really didn't talk about it again throughout the marriage? No, never. Okay. So as, you know, as I've learned the PTSD, now remember my response to the boss situation? Mm -hmm. The reason I ran was PTSD. Mm. I got into a fight or flight situation and I took off because I couldn't confront the pain. I didn't know mm-hmm. how to. I didn't have the tools to equip it. I wasn't emotionally healthy enough to confront that pain and to to unpack what was going to have to be unpacked. So now, and, and that pain define that pain. That was like the I dropped the ball, rejection. It was rejection. Just, it was I'm not good enough. Again, mm. I have failed. Again, I've screwed up. 
again. See, I can't do anything right again. And that's not God talking. Oh, no. That's Satan talking. (laughs) That is not God. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, For the listeners, we all hear that. We all hear those. And that's just saying, get it out of your head. Yep. So here we are in counseling for my husband's pornography addiction, which he, you know, we did have to work, we did have to work through. But for the very first time in our marriage, 25 plus now, 25, almost six months into our marriage, we were being completely honest with each other for the very first time sitting in this counselor's office. And like I said, God has God goes ahead of us. He prepares the way. Not only did he prepare the counselor for us, not only did he prepare the spiritual recovery team, the spiritual care team for us, he, at it, it was 10, 15 in the morning, we took a break. And the thing that I had to do was call my doctor because my counselor said I needed to be on medication. It was that severe. And I called my doctor. Now, how... How long does it normally take it to get into a doctor's office these days? Yeah, exactly. I, I called my doctor. Two, three months, right. Yeah. Called my doctor and they said, well, you know, why do you need to see him? And I said, they said, can you see a, a PA? And I said, no, I need to see the doctor. And they said, okay, well, what's this about? And I choked over the word suicidal depression. But I managed to get it out. And they said, well, could you be here at one o'clock today? And I just, my eyes flew open and I said, yes, I, I can do that. We got done with counseling at 1230 and it wasn't very far. So this was a counselor near the, this was a physician near the counseling, not where you lived or were all of them together? We were, we were within our same hometown. Our counselor happened to be local. And you got such a blessed oh, situation. Like I said, God went completely before us in this whole thing. So literally I was across the freeway from my doctor's office. And so when they said, you know, can you be here at one o'clock? I said, yes, I will do that. And I, you know, I hung up the phone, we went back into our session and I told the counselor what had happened. And he said, okay, that doesn't happen. That's a God thing. And when I walked into the doctor's office that afternoon, I sat down in the corner on the floor in that room with my head down and my knees pulled up. I was in a fetal position. And when the doctor walked in, He sat down in the chair and he looked at me and he said, what's happening? Tell me what's going on. And I started to choke it out and he looked at Dave and Dave filled in some of the information and he looked at me and he said, you're going to be okay. And I'm not surprised. I've been suspicious. Wow. And I just cried. And he said, but you're going to be okay. We're going to go through this together. Now, you see how God had prepared the way? Oh, yeah. This is, this is, I can't make this stuff up. I mean, you know, and I began at that point, we finished our, we finished our counseling, our, our spiritual care team met with our counselor. We had given permission for our counselor to share absolutely everything that he just discovered with our care team. And we then proceeded for the next 18 months to work with this group of people to, they became Jesus with skin on in our lives. They formed a cocoon around us that allowed us to to heal, to to bear everything that needed to come out. We literally talked over every subject in the world with them. There was not one part of our life that was not revealed to them. And we began to learn to trust. I I began to trust Dave one little 
step at a time. Remember I said that in the beginning, that trust is built one word, one action, one step at a time. Mm-hmm. And, and when it's taken, if he failed again, I don't know if he did fail along the way, but it's rips the rug out from under you and you're almost restarting. Right. And it makes it harder. And you are going to fail again. And we did fail again, both of us. I mm-hmm. had I had a very suicidal episode about six months into this. And I it scared me enough that I came clean immediately about it. And he called one of the part of one of the couples from our our team and they were at our house immediately. And they they had me, they were supporting me, they didn't leave us alone, they they were praying over me. I knew what was going on. I and I and it scared me, like I said. Dave Dave had slip ups and and they walked through him walked through all of this with us. They also walked through this with our children. And that was a gift I didn't know we were going to get. But they communicated with our children as much as they were able to without violating confidences. And they encouraged us as part of our healing process. We had to learn to live a different way. We had to learn to communicate a different way. We had to quit hiding and be willing to be 100% who we were, the good, bad, and the ugly, and right now the bad and the ugly were winning with each other because that's what built our trust. Mm-hmm. Every time we shared, this is how I'm feeling and this is my thoughts right now, and the other person didn't reject us, it built trust. And one of the things I kept that I struggled with as a mother was I didn't want my children to be harmed by what we were going through. You know, as parents, we want to protect our kids from the ugly parts of the world, right? And I remember in our care team, they said to us, why is it not important? You know, it's very, let me, let me rephrase that. It's very important that we teach our children to fail well. And I said, I I looked at him and I said, I don't want my children to, to, to go through this. I don't want them to see this. And it was, your children need to watch you walk through this, you know, and you're not going to tell them all the nitty gritty, but to answer their questions honestly and with integrity so that they, when they encounter similar situations, they know how to walk through it in a godly manner. That was hard. That was hard. But I will tell you today, David, we are reaping the benefits and the consequences of that level of authenticity with our children. And as they've begun to walk through, because they're all in, you know, their 20s and 30s, as they've, as they walk through this, and they're starting to hit those things in life that we all hit, Mm-hmm. they come and they're willing to talk and they know that if they tell us one, I'm not going to react and I'm going to say, well, how could you, you know, that's stupid. I'm going to be praying because I know the God who will get them through it. I may not have the answer. I probably don't have the answer, but I do know who does. And I will be the one praying. And it has enriched our relationship with our children. And I am eternally grateful for that. Now, what about, you're, we're talking about this from your perspective and your husband, that could be a whole other 
episode on his side. But talk briefly about your children. It sounds like they took it very well. And then your support group was reaching out to them and constantly interacting. Did they have any, did they look at their father different? Did they treat him differently? Uh, Were there things they needed to deal with to adjust? Because sadly, a pornography addiction, 100% wrong. No, I'm not justifying it, but it's sadly too common. Mm -hmm. So people are actually getting desensitizing. Well, everybody does it. Look, even the pastor did it. It's like, shouldn't be a pastor if he's doing it, right? But, um, and sorry, I made the comment. I mean that. Mm -hmm. Just like you said, when you had that issue in your life, you guys stepped down from leadership roles until you can get that balance back and then you can leave. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had episodes like that in my life where I'm like, nope, doesn't matter if it's me, my wife, or anybody else close to me. If there's huge balance gone down from leadership, take care of the family first. It goes God, family, Mm -hmm. you know, then everybody else. So how did your kids react? Was there ever any adjustments or any kind of bumps in the road there? There was, they did ask questions when we gave, when we finally got to the point where we gave them freedom to ask those questions, they did have questions. We began to have real honest communication to the point that when our sons were, you know, had found their, their life mate, God willing, they, we had the conversation with our daughters-in-law. And we talked with them. We said, you need to know our story. You need to know what has happened within our family because we will not have any secrets any longer in our family. And we are not, this is, we're not telling you this in a bragging manner. We're telling you this because God was gracious enough to save us from this. And this is, this is a constant struggle. And this is a, it's a daily choice to choose to live with integrity and authenticity. It's a daily choice to turn away from those things that so easily bring us down, whether it's pornography addiction. One of the things that that I have done in the last few years, David, is I have had to deal with the fact that I am a food addict. And I have okay. every symptom of addiction, and it's related to food. Okay, let's, again, let's talk about this. <laughs> you mentioned something back before the break, and I picked up on it. But I didn't want to stop you for the 37th time. I didn't want to stop the 36th. But you talked about your husband when the results came in. It was He was medicating the pain. Yes. I was medicating the pain with, with food. Talk about that to people. Because listen, if you're medicating with food and he's medicating with porn and someone else is medicating with heroin, what's the real problem? See what I mean? Yep. Talk to the audience about that. The real problem is that we're trying to fill the hole that only God can fill with yes. something else. And, you know, the the Bible talks to us about that there is only one God and that we are not to put any idol in front of God. Well, I want to, I don't know about anybody else, but I always want to think of an idol as a statue sitting on a shelf. Well, guess what God taught me? Anything that I put in place of God to, to, that I put my expectations in to meet what only God can meet in my life is an idol. Mm. And when I finally got that concept and I realized that I was using food when I was hurt, when I was upset, when I was angry, when I was listless, when I was fighting depression, when I was didn't know what to do with myself, 
as an excuse to celebrate something. And you have to, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in a, in a culture where food was a big part of every celebration, really, really good food. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about junk. I'm talking about the kind of food that makes your mouth water really good food, you know, (laughs) banquets and feasts and all your friends. Yes. And joy and laughter and just this, this incredible love among people who cared for each other and appreciate each other. So food for me goes into my culture. It goes into my heritage. It goes into how I believe that I'm showing love to people, which is fine. That's all fine. But when you, and the Bible talks about the sin of gluttony, when you eat beyond what your body needs, that's when it turns into the addiction. And in my case, I was using it to medicate, just like my husband was using pornography, to medicate the pain and not deal with it. But it didn't make me feel any better. In fact, it made me feel worse. Mm-hmm. So as we're unpacking, as we're becoming healthy, and as we're talking with our children, we have to start admitting, this is what I'm doing, and this is why, and this is what God says. All of this is not of God. This is what God says. God says, I have given you everything you need for your life, and I will be there with you always to the ends of the earth I will never leave you or forsake you. And he goes on and on. He says, I have called you by name. You are mine. I am the good shepherd who takes care of his sheep. And I will not lose one of you. Not one. If you get lost, I'm coming to look for you. He's given me everything I need. And this became, remember, my trust was shattered. So this became a trust issue with God. Do I trust Mm. him? Do I trust him that even if my marriage for some reason to this day would fall apart, would God take care of me? Would I be enough in God's eyes? And the answer to all of that is yes, because of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And isn't it crazy the most love and the simplest thing is what we have the hardest time with? Right. Yeah. So that was, we are 13 years past, <laughs> past this point. And Amen. Every, every year we get to our anniversary and we look at each other and we say, thank you, Jesus. We made it another year. And I will tell you right now, and because your listeners can't see me, because your listeners don't know me, they may, they may have a hard time believing this, but God did not just give me back my marriage. God remade it. It is brand new. I do not want the marriage I had the first 25 years. I don't ever want to see it again. Because it wasn't real. It wasn't authentic. I wasn't real. I was hiding. I was covering up who I am in Jesus Christ because I was afraid that if anybody knew who I really was, that I would be completely rejected. Part of what I did in my recovery as I continued on with counseling, I I began journaling. And what I had to do every day was answer a series of five questions every day. Because I, like I said, my emotions had stopped at nine years old. 
I was basically a walking dead woman. I was emotionally dead. And because I, God speaks to me in nature and through color, I describe my world at that point as gray. There was no color. It was just gray. Everything was gray. And as God began to heal the layers, as I began to unpack the wound and, and clean it out, and, and I describe it as, you know, a surgeon, we go into a sur- to surgery because there's, there's something that needs to be cut out. There's something that needs to be repaired, healed, cauterized, clean. God did that with his surgical knife. And he started to clean those areas out of my mind and in my heart, these lies that I had been believing. And as he did that, I started to see color. I started to notice that the trees were green. I would see flowers. I would pick up a newborn grandchild of mine and I would smell them and just weep at the beauty of what God had put in my life. And what he had given me back. And now I could see it. I didn't Mm. see it before. My husband and I, as we've learned to to choose purity in our marriage, purity in our relationship with each other, to keep ourselves only to each other, the joy that we experience in this relationship cannot be described. It is precious beyond words. We both look at each other and say, I don't want to be that other person ever again. That does not mean that we don't stumble every day. We do. There are days, Mm -hmm. but we have learned how to recognize the fight, to recognize the, the trigger and call it what it is and then get help. (laughs) <laughs> and sometimes that is sometimes that is as simple as Jesus I need you right now right now <laughs> I need you right now sometimes that is having to go to the other person and and talk about it sometimes that is calling back those the people on our team that we still are in contact with and saying we need help right now would you please can we meet you someplace could you pray for us here's what's going on when my husband has gotten trapped again in the pornography for whatever reason, the three guys on that team, he knows he can call any one of them and they will be there with him and they will walk through it with him and they will unpack what happened, why, what triggered, and let's deal with the trigger. Let's start calling it what it is. Let's unpack the unhealthiness behind it, the lie that's behind it, and let's choose a different path. Let's go forward. And there's, there's so much in this process of healing, but I know that I know you can heal. And as the wife of, of, a spou- of, of an addicted spouse, I know that you can learn to trust him again. And like I said, this has not been, you know, a forward, forward motion. This has been fits and starts. Thankfully, we're at a point now where we get more starts than we have fits. But I will also tell you, as part of this recovery, we fight more. (laughs) That's true, because you're being honest. Because we're being honest. When, you know, the first 25 years of marriage, we rarely fought. Yeah, that's something that people are like, what? Listen, if you're two humans and you're being real with each other, you both have your will, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict. And if you're in a conflictless marriage... 
one or both of you are probably in denial or a doormat. Yep. And that's not healthy. Right. And the thing that I learned was when I challenged my husband on something, and I didn't tell him he was stupid, you know, you have to learn, again, change your language, change how you think, realize you're- Hold your tongue. Hold your, Hold tongue, your tongue. That is appropriate. <laughs> but you also have to realize you're fighting on the same side. You're not fighting against each other. You're on the same side. You may be looking at the same situation from two different perspectives, and probably the resolution is somewhere in the middle. But there have been times that my husband has come to me and said, look, I did this. You know, I got, I went and I, I was online and something popped up and I looked at it and I shouldn't have done it. He comes to me and, he t- and we talk about it. And what I've learned is when he does that, believe it or not, that's, yes, it hurts. Okay, let's acknowledge it. It hurts that, that he got there again. But he told me right away. Mm. And he tell and then he tells me what he's doing to not get in that situation again. That's interesting because I know there's some women and okay, I gotta be careful how I say this. There's some women who don't want to discuss it with their husbands. They don't want to hear about it. They literally shut that down. They're like, you heal and I'll heal and we're good. Now to me that's a sign of still need for there's still an issue. Right. There still needs to be some unpacking done. But how would you advise a husband who wants help and a woman who wants nothing to do with it because it disgusts her, makes her sick, it makes her feel bad, like she's not good enough? How do they bridge that gap? Because that's a serious issue. Once it comes out to the light, there's shame, there's pain. Mm-hmm. But you can have guys or girls with this addiction right. who want help, but the other person is like, stiff arms. Like, I don't want to talk about it. Let's forget it ever happened and move on. Talk to those listeners. The only way that you can deal and truly heal from an addiction, first of all, you've got to have Jesus in the middle of it. You've got to be running to him. But secondly, you have to, you have to call it what it is and you have to face it head on. Denial is not going to make it go away. It just pushes it under the rug and then it just makes a bigger hole and then makes a bigger lump and you're going to keep tripping over it. So let's bring it out in the open. Let's deal with it. Let's talk about it honestly. Get help. That's one of the things that I do as a coach is I talk with women whose husbands are addicted to porn and they don't know how to process this. I will process this with you. I will go through this with you. I go through some, you know, some steps to, to process. If the, both the husband and wife want to come to us, then my husband and I do this together. I will not ever coach a man on my own, especially a man who's been struggling with a pornography addiction. That's dangerous. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. If you're listening to this, even if you're, would you agree or disagree? If you're a woman who was a, like, you just had this betrayal by your husband, you shouldn't be going to a man for counsel. No, it's way too vulnerable, no. way too much danger. Right. And likewise, a guy shouldn't be going to a woman. Right. You need to, you need to go, you need to find your accountability group. And I, and this is one of the key things in recovery. My husband has an accountability group of some men, one who are spiritually strong, two who are not going to get snowed. We all know people that we can hang around and we can tell them whatever we want to tell them and they're going to believe us, right? They'll never hold our feet to the fire on anything. You need people in an accountability group who, that's not going to happen. They're, they're willing. I, they're called truth tellers. They're going to look you in the face and they're going to say, that's a bunch of bull. Okay. 
when are you going to, you know, I just, I just had this happen to me this morning. I was meeting with one of my, an accountability, a business accountability group. And one of my accountability partners called me out on something. She was dead right. But she cares about me enough that she's willing to look me in the eye and say, you're not telling me the truth. I'm going to push back on you and we're going to, we're going to back up and we're going to look at this again. And then you tell me what's going on. What's really behind this? Those are the yeah, kind of I, people you need in an accountability group. I needed those and they had to be women. My husband needs those and they have to be men. And those are the people we cannot go through. As Americans, we want to go through life believing that the Lone Ranger was the way to go. Well, I'm sorry, the Lone Ranger had Tonto. He was not lone. Nope. <laughs> he just, he had Tonto. He didn't even exactly. go it alone. We cannot go it alone. The, the, the danger of isolation is that you are, we all know this from watching, you know, National Geographic and all these other things. Which animal gets picked off? The one that leaves the pack. The one that leaves the pack. So we have to be surrounded by a community that loves us enough to hold us accountable and will tell us the truth even when it hurts because they're willing to go through the process with us. So who do you yeah. have in your life that's that way? And if yeah, you, don't, says, you, know, this- you know, if you don't have someone in your life, why not? Yeah, there's that saying, a friend tells you what you want to hear. A real friend tells you what you need to hear. Mm-hmm. And the, some people are listening right now and they're thinking, well, I have these friends. I need to be honest with them. You got to be careful who right. you share with. But if Kirsten, like what she's describing, is someone who is a godly influence, who's going to point you to God, who's, who, you know, is not going to judge, who's going to help you deal with this. Those are the people you need to share with. And when you don't have that, that's when, you know, counselors are the right step because counselors are the right step even with good friends if you get a good godly counselor. But to have someone, you know, we always talk about the Great Commission, go you therefore and teach all nations. Mm It's not called the great mission. It's the great co-mission. Right. It's, together. it's together. The apostles had each other. We have each other. It's exactly what Kirsten's saying. It's togetherness. It's yep. as a group for Christ with one goal and purpose. What I tell couples today, especially women who contact me because they have some suspicions, I ask them, who do you have friend-wise as a couple? And that sounds like maybe a crazy question to ask a woman who's coming to me about problems. But what I've, what I have identified and what we identified in our lives is a warning sign is isolation. If you do not as a couple have good friends around you, people who do life with you, not just fun, no life, with life you. with you, you are getting separated and you are going to get picked off. The enemy likes nothing better than to get you separated and to think, oh, we're doing okay and we're fine. When we had to go pick those six people for this soul, you know, this this spiritual care team, we had a terrible time. We the first couple was easy because like I said, we had been in a small group study with them for years. They, we had done life with them. Our kids were the same age. We had, we had been through parent deaths. We had been through kid accidents, you know, all sorts of messy stuff with them. You know, teenage, you know, stupid mistakes that we all made and our kids made. 
we'd been through marriages. We'd been, I mean, we had just been through life together. We knew we could trust them. They were safe people. And that's, that's a key here. You need people who are safe when you're going to talk about something like this. But picking the other two couples were not easy because we were isolated. He would be friends with the husband, but I didn't have a relationship with the wife or I didn't feel like, you know, one or the other of them had the spiritual strength that we knew they were going to have. So when we finally decided on this group of six people, it, we were almost, we were desperate because we literally had eliminated just about everyone that we knew and we realized we didn't know that many people. And that yeah, is that crazy? Under- you, you don't realize it's even happening. No. Or you surround yourself as you get isolated. Sometimes it's not even alone, but you surround yourself with really shallow people. Yep. Like people who are fun, people who are there for the party, people who are there on the good times. But when the proverbial crap hits the fan, mm-hmm. nobody's there for you, really. Right. So that's that's important. That's one thing to identify. If you see that happening, that's a warning sign that you are not in a healthy place. And you need to, you need to cultivate, you need to be praying for and cultivating people who will be this way in your life. It's not a frightening thing. It's one of the most freeing things you can ever experience. We get together with, with these friends now that we have identified and there is nothing that we can't talk about with them. If we're struggling with something, we can just be, we can just be very clean with them. Now, I'm not going to say that to everybody, but I can say it to them because I know one, they're going to tell me the truth. And two, they're going to pray for me. And three, they're going to love me no matter what. And that's that unconditional, I accept you as you are love. And I've been there with you and I'm not walking away. I'm going there with you. Those are the friendships that you want. And you're not going to have a lot of those. You shouldn't have a lot of those. You can't have a lot of those. They take a lot of energy. And let's take, I'm going to take another break. And this is a crazy break because Kirsten and I, I want to explain what I'm about to do. I'm about to take another commercial break for someone who I don't know who it's going to be. And this is what I mean by that. I believe that right now there's men and women listening to this. Now, women, you have a great resource in Kirsten and her information's in the show notes. Get a hold of her. At least start your journey where you can begin the healing process and get direction. But I want to put I got to find somebody who, again, I'm not God. I don't know all the ins and outs. You can think somebody's good and they're really evil, but we're going to try to find somebody, maybe even the intensive that Kirsten went to and her husband, and put just a resource for you, a commercial resource for where you can go and get help. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we come back. Kirsten, you've told us where you've been. Thank you. Some of the real obstacles you had to face. And then when we get back, we're going to pick up anything we've missed, anything we've missed you want to talk about, and then where you're at today and where you're going so we can help you for your time today. Okay. Awesome. Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone. And two weeks ago, when I had the privilege of recording the Kirsten Samuel story, we took a break and we paused because I just felt that there was a resource we needed to put out there for families and specifically men. Kirsten and her husband are amazing. And you can see where God's brought them and you're about to see where they're going. And she's an amazing resource for women. But I don't want to leave the men out and the families. So I was able to contact the counselor that helped 
David and Kirsten recover and become the powerful family that they are today. 13 years ago, they were on the brink of disaster. And now they're writing books, speaking publicly, and God's using them to change thousands of lives. So the man that he used to act as a catalyst in their life was a man named Rob Jackson. Rob Jackson has a brief intensive that you and your loved one can go to. You spend a weekend and you unpack everything that's not just bothering you, but what's driving the behavior. It's Christ-centered, integrated care with someone who's experienced, someone who is Christ-centered, loves you, and only wants what's best to help glorify God and unite you and your family together. And he deals with individuals, he deals with families, he deals with couples, but what you're hearing Kirsten talk about is the exact program that he offers today. So check out icebergmodel.com. You can find the link in the show notes. And if you are struggling with a sexual addiction, if you're in a marriage that's been wrecked by adultery, if you are hiding a life that you've never told anybody about, talk to Rob. He can do video sessions. He hosts regular webinars over the weekend. And there's so many resources available. So again, this is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast. And this whole episode is about the victorious Christian life that Kirsten and her husband David are now living. The man that God used to help them get there is Rob Jackson. So if you're out there listening today, don't wait. Check out the icebergmodel.com. Give Rob a call and get moving forward on that spiritual victory you're hearing Kirsten and her husband talk about. We can all have that. It is possible. Don't believe the lie. We already have victory through Christ. Now's the time to claim it. This is Dave with the Remarkable People Podcast. We love you. You can do this. God wants you to do this. You make the choice. Now let's get back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. And Kirsten, thank you again so much for being on today. Thank you for your time and thank you for your transparency. This is hugely important and especially in our society. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. So before we went to our second break, which is unusual for us, we were saying, is there anything else to this point we haven't covered yet that you think is important or it's impressed upon your heart to share with the audience? And then we're going to transition into where you're at today, your husband, and where you guys are going, how we can help you get there. Absolutely. One of the things that I mentioned early on as we were talking was my husband believed, and I actually did as well, that we could deal with this ourselves. Well, we proved we couldn't. <laughs> and my husband had been dealing with it, and and I tell this in my in my book, Choosing a Way Out. I tell this part of the story. You know, he had been exposed, like I said, before 11 years old. He was a young child, and he had repeated exposures throughout his growing up years and into his early adulthood before we were married. And he believed that when he, when we got married, that, that, it, that he would no longer be tempted. The addiction would be gone. At that point, he probably wouldn't have even called it an addiction. But today, we have these little computers that we hold in our hands that we call smartphones. 
We have laptops, we have iPads, we have iPods, you name it, we have internet connected devices. And without even trying, you can become exposed to pornography on the internet. It is the fastest growing industry faster than Google, Microsoft, you start naming them and put them all together, the, the pornography industry online is growing faster than that, than all of those combined. Yep, absolutely. It has its own web. I mean, uh -huh. there's a whole dark web and there's a whole alternative of extensions instead of .coms. It's just, it is, it is incredibly easy to become exposed and then to become entrapped. So this is not something that you can just say, well, I, you know, we'll deal with it and he's not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore and go your own way and think you're going to survive. You're not. You need people. You need a coach. You need a counselor. You probably need both. You need a, an accountability group. You need support. You need help so that you can break the the hold on you there are there are studies um you can go to covenanteyes.com they've got a lot of studies on what pornography addiction does to the brain and it, it it is it does you have to rewire your brain i mean and and some people don't like that term but i think about it this way if i have done something for many years and i'm doing it in a way that injures myself let's say that i've been walking wrong and because of that you know, I've, I've worn out the cartilage in my knee for some reason, because I'm not, my gait is off. Well, I go to a physical therapist, maybe I have to have surgery, but I go to a physical therapist at the bare minimum, and they have to teach me a new way to walk, correct? Wouldn't you say that's true? Oh, yes, absolutely. My, I might, <laughs> I mute my mic. Yeah. So I was not, not agreeing with you. Yeah, but you, you, you do that. In effect, you're re rewiring your brain. You're having to learn a new way. Well, that's the same thing with addiction, with pornography addiction. We have to learn a new way. We have to undo what we've done in order to move forward. That's not negative. That's a part of being human. And we have to blow this stigma. And we have to start talking honestly about what's happening the statistics, you know, I, I, you know, you, a lot of your listeners may, may claim to be Christians and they may believe like I believed that, well, you know, this couldn't happen in a good Christian home. Well, it does. It, oh, absolutely. The statistics are the same. Mm -hmm. Whether you claim a profess a belief in Jesus Christ or whether you don't. One of the recent mm -hmm. stats I saw was that the highest pornography usage is on Sunday nights. Be fun. You know what? I bet that has to, I'm spitballing here, but I guess Sunday nights is before Monday. People are most depressed, so they're medicating with porn before they have to go back to work. They hate sense. on Monday. But, I mean, yeah. you know, there's, and you're right. Right now, the statistics are that women are being sucked into pornography as an addict mm. much higher, you know, at a faster rate. That's still, I mean, the men still outpace the women considerably. Oh, yes. But, yeah, I, I was talking about right. percentage of growth. Percentage of growth, right. The yeah. other statistic that just breaks my heart is that pornography addiction, people who are in pornography addiction are 300% more likely to be, to be commit infidelity in their marriage. 300%. Because they're acting out. They're acting out. It's a progressive addiction. Mm-hmm. 
I think aren't all, I mean, I, I believe all addictions are. are progressive. I believe so. Because if you go unmedicated, everything's going to get worse. Things right. don't get better. So the, the, the issue is, like I tell, like I tell women who, who call me and talk to me, there's not a thing you can tell me that's going to shock me. And I'm not going to think less of you because you're telling me the truth. Because the Bible tells us that the truth sets us free. The lie that Satan wants us to believe is that if you tell it, then nobody's going to, one, either nobody's going to believe you, or two, you're going to be rejected. Well, in my experience, the exact thing happened. I was believed, and I was accepted with open arms. Yes, things had to be changed. My husband experienced the same thing. Every woman that I talked to, that's what I want to give you, is I want you to know that I will accept you. I will believe you. I will talk truth to you. But it'll always be done from a point of, I've been there, and I feel your pain, and I love you because of Jesus. And I will tell you right now that I do not know any other way to recover from the, the wounds of pornography addiction other than Jesus Christ. He has to be the basis. He's the only one that has the answers. I can only point you to him. And I can tell you, and that's when I say only point you to him, that's the, that's the best place I can point you, honestly. Because he is the one that is going to meet that deep need that you're medicating with something else. And so we have to find out who you are in Jesus. Who does God say you are? Like you mentioned earlier, David, those lies, those things that were flying through my head, that wasn't God. That was not God. That was Satan. Yeah. And he was twisting yeah. God's words. He is not creative. He started with Eve in the garden when he said, did God really say? When God had mm -hmm. said it, and then he caused her to pause and wondered, had she heard correctly? He still does the same thing today. He is not creative, mm -hmm. but he's good. But he's not creative. He's good at it. Uh, I agree. Anytime I see adultery, it's the same playbook over and the over same again. Lie. When you start listening to people's stories of infidelity, again, doesn't matter man or woman, mm -hmm. it's the same freaking playbook. These men don't know each other. These women don't know each other. But Satan hooks them, tricks them, brings them on the same evil path. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just crazy to watch. It's seriously sad. Right. And the thing is, it's like you said, he's not creative. He's Satan is sitting back laughing, running the same play. We can watch, observe, and we're still doing it. We are. And me and you can fall into it. Any listener can fall into it. We got to guard ourselves and help each other. We do. And we have to, we have to admit that we are that vulnerable, that we yeah. are that easily tripped up. Yeah. And parents listening, don't be stupid. No. Sorry for the Greek there, right? Don't be stupid. <laughs> I mean, your kids have a cell phone. Would you take a magazine, a porn magazine, and shove in their pocket, tap them on the chest and say, don't look at that? Right. If they got a cell phone, if they have apps, they have access to everything. And sadly, they're probably looking at it. Not because they're not a quote unquote good kid, no. because they're human. They're human. They're human. And Covenant Eyes, yes. you mentioned that earlier, Kirsten. So, I've used Covenant Eyes for yeah. years. I love Covenant Eyes because if you're saying, well, we don't have a problem with my family, well, don't be a dummy. Use Covenant Eyes. So you continue not to have a problem. Right. Put some safeguards in place. Right. And they're not a sponsor. I'm no. just saying it because I mean it. Yeah. Go, I mean to cut you no, off. No, Covenant Eyes we've got on all internet-enabled devices in our home. 
And when I say all internet-abled devices, I mean it. The other thing that, that we have done to be completely transparent with each other is I have access to every internet account he has. He has access to every internet account I have. Now, I want to tell you a funny story. Go ahead. Kind of, a, a kind of a tough topic, but I have to tell you a funny story. Dave's, because of Covenant Eyes, one of the things you set up is you can set up to have an accountability report sent weekly to anyone you want. Well, as a, as a wife of an addict, I am not his accountability partner. That is not a good situation at all. No, I highly recommend, advise, agree. Right. So the, we've, we've identified and I agreed to these men that get a copy of Dave's accountability report. Now, I just told you that all internet-enabled devices in our home have Covenant Eyes installed on them. So they're tracking all of everything that's going on, right? Well, I'm researching pornography recovery. I'm researching the stats about pornography. I'm researching depression recovery as part of, of my recovery. I'm researching all of these things. So lately, guess who's flagging my husband's report? You. Hey. <laughs> So I'm the one having to go to his accountability partners going, hey, guys, this is what I was doing. This was not Dave. And it's really, it's a joke now between us because he looks back at me and goes, I am guilt-free. I didn't do any of this. This is my wife. And we just laugh about it. The guys laugh about it. They're, they've gotten to a point now where if I haven't already fessed up, you know, said, hey, this is what I was doing. This is the research. This is why. They'll contact both of us and say, what were you doing? And then we can tell them, but there's no guilt. There's this freedom. There's this laughter mm -hmm. because we know what's going on. Now, another service that you can, and I've, I've, I've not used this one, but I've heard about it from some others that trust it is Net Nanny, especially for younger children. That's got some more stringent controls on it from my understanding, but it's worth checking out. Net Nanny, do not think your kids are not getting exposed. They are. They yeah. are. And, and they're getting hooked and they're getting pulled in. And even if it's not necessarily the cultures like have premarital sex or who doesn't have premarital sex and, oh, this is okay to talk this way. And boys and girls can be friends and you can talk alone. No, that's all bull crap and a lie. And these kids are getting hooked and pulled in and addicted and brought into premarital sex at early ages. And it's yes. really sad. It is It's bad. destroying them. It is. And you're not being a prude. You're not, you're not being anti-cultural. Well, you are being anti-cultural, but this is a good one. Okay. <laughs> Why would you not protect your home, your family, the people that you love the most? Why would you not? Would you give them a little bit of arsenic? And yeah, no, okay? absolutely not. What about no strychnine? Would you just put a drop of strychnine in your kid's bottle and hand it to them or in their, in their water or whatever? No. Then why yeah. are you saying this is okay? It's not. A little bit of toxic poison is still poison. Mm -hmm. and, and God told us about this from the beginning of time. And he didn't do it because he's a killjoy. God invented sex. Okay? It was his idea. He thinks it's a great thing. He created it. He, I agree. He also said <laughs> to protect it because it is the greatest gift. One of the greatest gifts that we have. It is the greatest expression of intimacy. And so I just encourage you, don't be blind. 
put some of these things in place, not because you're trying to be, you know, the mommy and, and, and all of this. And that's one other thing that that whole thing about being the mom, when you are the wife, you're not the mom. And that's a key distinction. When it comes to your husband, you are not his mother. You are his wife. You are his helper, his help meet. That's the way God set it up. You are equal. You are to be to be pulling together on the same team. And if you're treating your husband like he's your child, we need to talk. There's something going on. Yeah. Yeah, something's out of whack there. And it's the same thing with with men. Men, your your wife is not the little woman. She is not your property. She is not your child to be spoken down to. She is your equal in God's eyes, and she is supposed to be treated with the utmost respect and care. That's how God designed it. That's how Jesus treated women. If you look at how Jesus treated women, he was so anti-cultural. And he raised them to a level of honor. Because God says that we are all created in his image, and we have value because we are created in his image. And that's that whole, you know, that whole valuing life. This is a, this is this is all part of devaluing life when when we get sucked into any kind of pornography or sexual addiction. We look at the other person as property or an object instead of someone created in God's image, and that just breaks my heart. Yeah, man. Again, we could just keep unpacking this. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate you. All right. Well, talk about this. Where are you today? Where's Dave today? And where are you guys headed? Well, we are still married. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Because of what God did. Like I said, he's remade our marriage. He is my best friend. I am his. There is nothing that I cannot tell him. And we have had some extremely awkward conversations, even recently. (laughs) And, And so I'm really grateful that we are at this position. We are... We mentioned, David, you mentioned at the beginning that I'm an author and a coach and a speaker. My heart is to help women and to encourage them to bring them hope when when they discover that their husband is addicted to pornography. I call it act, aftershock recovery coaching because it is a shock. And when you're in shock, you know that you don't do things. You don't you can't process, like I described at the beginning, the the um, the gamut of emotions that you run through initially are, are just overwhelming. And if you don't know where to turn to get some help, you're going to just try to brush it off. I did when I discovered it. I, I thought at first I was going to run, but thankfully God had already put people in place. So if you find yourself even suspicious Go to my website, get that that free ebook, 10 Warning Signs Your Gut Already Knows. The gut is our second brain. That is a scientific fact. And some of us pay, pay better attention to our gut. We listen better to our gut. But if your gut is telling you something is not right, listen. And then you can call me. Then there's a free consultation button right there on the homepage of my website. You can give me a call and let's talk. I'm... I'm not going to tell you I will heal everything, but I will walk the process with you. And I want you to hear this. There is hope. Just like we were told within the, within the first two hours of Dave revealing this to me, there is hope. This does not have to be fatal, but you do have to take action. You cannot ignore it. It's time. 
the the statistics are from the the, psych, the psychology today reveals that the average couple who faces a crisis like this like pornography addiction waits 6 years 6 years before they reach out for help wow that's terrible imagine what damage is done in 6 years yeah i think a lot of us know what kind of damage is it's, done in 6 years if you would reach out today Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, you're going to have to confront the issues. I will not guarantee you your marriage will survive. I can't guarantee that because you have choices to make. Your husband has choices to make. Whichever one of you is addicted, there are choices that have to be made. But I can show you some principles that will help you move forward, that will help you heal. And at the, at the bare minimum, you will be in a better place than you are today. You don't have to reach out. But if you don't, where are you going to be? Yeah. And for Kirsten, her and her husband, you've heard through this whole episode, they took immediate drastic action and they had a support team surrounding them. And because of that, they're here 13 years past the incident and helping people, you know, pointing people to God, helping you heal and moving forward. If they didn't take immediate action, they, this interview probably wouldn't be happening today. No. Uh, and it's all because of God, but Kirsten and David, Kirsten and David, they took the steps and they made it a priority. So nobody wants to face this. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to deal with it. It's painful, but you got to do you it. Gotta do you it. have to. It's just like if you broke your leg, would you sit? Would you just keep walking on it? Yeah, you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a tear in my shoulder for like a couple of years now and I just won't get surgery. All right. No, right. you're right. But it hurts me. You know what? That's actually a great point. I'm in pain every day. It limits my activity. I avoid things I should do or even want to do mm-hmm. because I have a tear in my shoulder. Right. And how's it affecting your family life? Yeah. It impacts what I do with my kids. Right. It impacts what I do with my wife. Right. And it, if I'm in pain, I'm grumpy and that affects That's that. right. So the porn's the same way. If we're not dealing with this, it's trickling over into other aspects, even though we don't see it, right. but it is. It's called dealing with chronic pain or choosing to deal with the acute pain so that the pain goes away, that you heal. So you have to make a choice. And we have these choices all the time in our lives. We make them, you know, the, like I said, we want to qualify sin. Well, in God's eyes, God says sin is sin. There's no, there's no greater sin than any other sin because sin is always disobeying God and, and turning our back on him and saying, no, I'm going to do it my way because my way is better. But see, God in his love said, I loved you enough that I died on a cross. I suffered a brutal, excruciating death for you when you didn't even ask me. And then three days later, I, I burst out of that tomb and I crushed sin. I've already paid the penalty. All you have to do is come to me. You don't have to get better. You just come to me as you are because I've already paid the cost. Now, why would you not take that gift? Why not? Why would you not come to Jesus and say, I know you already know this, but I got to tell you, and I guarantee you, when I hit the bottom, when I, like the subtitle of my book says, when the bottom isn't the bottom, when I crashed through the bottom and I went down again <laughs> and I went down again and I finally hit bottom, 
I turned around, and Jesus was standing there with his arms open wide. And I met love in a way I had never known. Jesus is the answer. And I would love to show you how. I would love to point you to him. Because he alone is the hope for everything that's going on in your life. He alone. Amen. Well, Kirsten, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, David. It's been a privilege. And again, as the listeners, we're going to put a bunch of links in the show notes. Reach out to Kirsten and David and get help. We'll put some other resources hopefully up there too for you. And, you know, if we can help you in any way, please let us know. And then Kirsten, are there any final thoughts or anything you want to share before we cut this off? I just want to say, I know we've talked about a really tough subject today, and we've talked about a subject that the culture doesn't want to address. Mm. But Too much money in it. Why would culture want to address it? Well, and it feels good, right? Yeah. But Temporarily. Yes, but put yourself in the, in the shoes of those that are being forced to produce that pornography. These are real, mm. these are real women, real children, real men who are enslaved. Human trafficking is not a nice thing that you hear and, oh, it's over off on the side. No, no, it's in your communities. So, so you're not saying the majority of porn is made by willing people who enjoy no. it? Yeah, I'm, I'm being yes. sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> the majority of porn out there is not willing people who enjoy it. That's the fantasy. That's not the reality. That's what the pornographers want you to believe, that it's consensual, that everything is, you know, that these... You know, they even have gone as far in some reports that I've read where they say that this is just like a family. No, it is not. It is dehumanizing. It is dangerous. And it is someone's daughter or someone's son. Please do not feed this industry. Please get help. You, you are not stuck. You are not stuck. There is hope. There is a way out. And I hope that you'll mm-hmm. choose it today. Because you can choose to deny it. Or you can choose to overcome. Yeah, and for the people out there listening right now who are in pornography. We're not saying you're a horrible human and there's no hope for right. you either. You have sin. We have sin. We all have sin. But what we're saying is you need help. I need help. We all need help. And... I personally know a couple of people who have been involved in pornography in the sense of actually acting right. on screen. And those individuals, male and female, all had pain in their past yep. that they were just like, I have, like, they were gorgeous people, mm-hmm. men and women, but they're like, I hate myself. Mm-hmm. I'm a piece of crap. And they had serious baggage. And that's where we go back to. They, we, we are in Jesus. Yep. Yep. And there's people I know, and I'm sure you know that it looks on the outside like everything is great in their life. And man, why well, I would love to have that life. They got money, they got fame, they got good looks. But then at the end of the day, man, they're horribly, horribly in pain inside. Yes. So yes. the one, uh, not the one, a great, the, the great thing about God and love is there's no limits. He loves everybody. There's one race, the human race. There's no, in this case, there's no, there's male and female. Mm-hmm. But he loves every one of us equally, young, old, rich, poor, sick, healthy. Yep. My pastor, Brady Boyd, puts it this way, and I love this, that we swim in oceans of grace. Oh, that's beautiful. 
We cannot plumb the depths. We cannot reach the shore. We will never out grace God. But it's not a cheap grace because it costs Jesus everything. Mm. Well, Kirsten, thank you for sharing your story. You truly are remarkable. I thank God for you. And I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation privately and in person, you know, continue to be friends. And for the listeners out there, if you've heard this, share it. Tell your friends, tell your family. People you don't even consider would have an issue with this, they do. They do. Do them a favor. I'm not, this isn't a shameless plug to get the podcast to grow. Remember, look at episode one. Our whole purpose is to glorify God, and we're glorifying God by helping you. So my goal is to help you. That's going to glorify you and God. So share these. Share these episodes. Get people on board. Be blunt. You can say, hey, I don't have this problem, but I know a lot of you do, right? <laughs> or be honest. I have this problem. This episode really helped me. But take that step. Get out of the darkness. Go into the light. That starts the healing. That's right. It says that there is no condemnation that has come upon you that God will not set free. So please, please listen to what God has to say. You are dearly loved. You are adored. You are a wonderful person because you've been created in God's image and you have value. Don't ever forget that. Amen. And with that message and on that note, we're going to end this episode. We'll see you next week. And again, reach out to Kirsten, reach out to her husband, me, whoever you need to. But the number one lifeline is God. We love you. Have a great day. And we'll see you soon. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life.